Last week we covered verse 4. This week we're going to cover probably all of verse 5. But first, we're going to read the first 14 verses of this chapter. Ephesians 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, and all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory, and in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, till we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Before we jump into verse 5, I want to briefly review what we talked about last time I was here, uh, here in verse 4. In verse 4, Paul tells us that God, the Father, chose us, the church, in him, the Christ, before the foundation of the world. I spent most of my time, last message, emphasizing the correct understanding of this word chose in verse 4. This choice that God makes is an active, a conscious, deliberate, free, and uncompelled choice that he makes before the foundation of the world. And this choice is unconditional, at least with respect to us. It's conditioned only on the counsel of God's will, which Paul will repeat several times. Um, the longer I spend here in the first 14 verses of Ephesians 1, the more repetitive my sermons are going to sound because Paul repeats himself in many different ways in order to really help us understand what's going on. But what I want us to get out of verse 4 is that nothing that man can do or has ever done has any bearing on God's sovereign decree to save his people. The choice of Ephesians 1.4 is God's free and sovereign power to save those he wants. The reason he chooses to save any particular person has nothing to do with anything God has foreseen concerning that person. does not depend on anything found in the man because there's nothing to find. It depends on his free and sovereign grace, which he dispenses wherever he wills to whomever he wills. And we're going to spend some time today in John chapter 3 looking at Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus where he tells Nicodemus exactly that, that the grace of God for salvation is poured out on whomever he wishes. Now, jumping into verse 5, 
I'm going to do something that I don't know that I've ever done before. I'm going to begin my sermon with a joke. But the reason will be evident as we move on. Um, There's a comedian who was known for his stand-up acts just being just one-liner after one-liner after one-liner. There was really no narrative, but it worked for him. He was good at it. And he said, I saw a commercial on late-night TV. It said, forget everything you know about slipcovers. So I did, and it was a load off my mind. Then the commercial tried to sell me slipcovers, and I didn't know what they were. And believe it or not, this is how we have to approach the attributes of God. When the attributes of God have parallel expressions in human emotion and in human philosophy, oftentimes it is necessary to forget everything we know about that particular attribute and allow Scripture to teach us how God expresses these things, how God manifests these things, and who God is when we talk about these things. Just to give you a quick example, and we will see several of these as we move forward, right? Scripture says that God hates certain people, doesn't it? You tell people that God hates the wicked, and people will often object because they don't know the Scripture. Psalm 5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. You say, well, God doesn't hate anyone. Okay, fine, he abhors them. That's better, right? Scripture is clear that God has hatred for the wicked. God has hatred for evildoers. And that's just one of many, many places we could go to see this. And the reason I'm using this as an example is because as we understand hate, we understand that we're not allowed to do that, right? 1 John 3.15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So what's the difference? Why is God allowed to hate the wicked and we aren't? Right? In our sinful nature, we love to hate, don't we? Someone cuts you off in traffic, you think evil thoughts. <laughs> The difference is justice. John tells us there in 1 John 3 that hatred is murder for us. But this tells us something, that hatred is an expression of death, right? Hatred is a pouring out of wrath. When we hate someone, when we think hateful thoughts towards them, we are saying, I want to express my wrath against this person. And when we do so, we are unjust and unrighteous. Not only is our hatred unjust and unrighteous, it comes from a place of injustice and unrighteousness because we ourselves are unrighteous. We are deserving of that wrath which we wish to put upon others. This is not the case for God, right? God is just and God is righteous, and so his hatred, his wrath is just and righteous. So when we think of God's hatred, we must not think of the way in which we hate. The way in which we express hatred towards others. We Think about how scripture tells us that God is righteous and those whom God hates 
deserve God's wrath. The two things in verse 5 that we need to be careful not to get wrong are love and adoption. So we're going to spend some time now talking about love. Right at the end of verse 4, Paul begins the next sentence with, in love. Now, it isn't actually clear whether the phrase in love goes with the sentence before or the sentence after. Right? There's no punctuation in the Greek. Apparently, punctuation and periods and commas are a recent invention. If you go back and you, know, you can look at the facsimiles of the manuscripts, and it's just, you're lucky if there's spaces in it. You know? um, and so it isn't clear which sentence the phrase in love goes with, but it's okay because both sentences are talking about the same thing. So either choice you could make about where to stick in love as you read it work because it's talking about the same thing, right? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. This in love is talking about the choice of God before the foundation of the world. Or if you put it with the next sentence, in love, he predestined. So either way, it's talking about the same thing. Now, before we get to what this love of verse 4 is, we're going to talk about what it is not. Um, I spent a lot of time talking about this last time I was in Ephesians on Wednesday nights, um, and it made some people upset. So I'm not going to spend too much time there, but what this love is not is that we understand that God is love, right? Scripture tells us that God is love, that God's nature is love. And so God's love as an expression of his nature is manifest in all that he does. Because God is love, he acts as love in all the things that he does, all of his decrees, all of his dispositions, all of his actions. And so you cannot separate God's nature as love from the things that he does. And so in some sense, God's nature as love is expressed in his acts and dispositions towards all creatures, even in his justice and wrath towards the wicked. But that is not the love of Ephesians 1.4. It's not what Ephesians 1.4 is talking about. Ephesians 1.4 is also not talking about a love of emotional affection or infatuation or passion. Husbands and wives, you know that love, right? That love that makes you look at your spouse and say, ooh la la. It's not what Paul's talking about here. And it's also not the love of John 3.16. Remember, John 3.16 has the word love in it. For God so loved the world. God loved the world so much. That's not correct, is it? We need to understand the context of John 3 in order to understand the love of John 3, right? So Jesus is having this clandestine meeting with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is the teacher of Israel, the ruler of the Jews. And so you've got the team captain of Team Israel meeting with the man claiming to be the promised Messiah, right? This is the one who Israel has been looking for. 
And so Nicodemus does well to seek him out and double check. So Nicodemus is responsible for teaching the Jews. He's chief Pharisee, right? And so Jesus explains to Nicodemus that salvation is of the Lord. It depends not on the will of man. Let's read some of this. John 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Now whether or not he was telling the truth is... uh, bit of a mystery. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Right? Jesus deflects. <laughs> Nicodemus, I know that you are from God, for you do miracles. And there's sort of an implied, what's up with that? And Jesus is just like, you must be born again. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, why is that what he thought of? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from. Or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So that's everything leading up to John 3.16. So Jesus has explained to Nicodemus that the Spirit of God blows when and where it wishes for salvation. To understand John 3.16, we need to understand where Nicodemus is coming from. Nicodemus, knowing well the whole Torah, the whole of the Old Testament, knows very well that there is a Messiah coming. There is a Savior that has been promised to Israel. And we know from Jesus' many conversations with the Pharisees, with the Jews, that they are expecting a conquering king. They are expecting a king to come and conquer Rome, right? Because Rome was ruling over Israel at the time and oppressing the Jews with their rule. And then we also know that in Judaism, these Jews, the Pharisees in particular, were very proud of who they were. They believed that this Messiah was coming to save them because they were born of Israel. That this Messiah was coming to crush the Gentiles. Nicodemus thinks that salvation is for the Jews, that it depends on the works of the law, and that the Spirit of God has blown over Israel and no one else. 
So Jesus refutes this when he says, God loved the world in this way. He's refuting this elitist Jewish theology that Israel was the sole inheritors of God's favor. God's saving love is not reserved uniquely for Israel by blood, but rather it is reserved uniquely for Israel by faith. The true Israel, the elect of God, who consists of both Jews and Gentiles. So when Jesus said God loved the world... He's refuting Nicodemus, who thinks God loves me. God loves Israel and my people and not those filthy Gentiles. Jesus says, no, God loves the Greeks too. My people, Jesus, my people come from the world. My people come from every nation. This is what we see in Revelation 7. When John receives the vision of the people of God worshiping in heaven. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne. And before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. So not to sound woke, but... Jesus in John 3.16 is talking about the diversity of the people of God. And then we see this in verse 17 because people who abuse John 3.16 really don't like to read John 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world like you think he did, Nicodemus. Right? Nicodemus thinks Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, the King, is coming to crush the Gentiles. And Jesus said, God did not send me into the world to do that. But in order that those Gentiles might be saved through me. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. So the way in which Jesus is talking about love here is a bit different from what we're seeing here in Ephesians 1, 4. It is general in a sense, and it does apply to the elect specifically in a sense, but the point is that God's love is not reserved uniquely for Israel. The point is that the people of God come from all nations, tribes, and tongues. So what are we talking about here in the end of Ephesians 1.4 and the beginning of Ephesians 1.5? What Paul is telling us is about the unique and salvific love with which God relates to his people alone. God's love is set as the purpose, the reason, the foundation of all the other actions that we're going to talk about and that we have talked about. Election, adoption, sanctification, justification. God's love for his people and his people alone is the foundation for all of these things. And so there are three points, if you're taking notes. Here's your structure for the sermon. Three points 
that I want you to understand about in love of Ephesians 1.4. It is unique to the elect. It is unconditional with respect to the elect, and it is effectual for the salvation of the elect. Three things that in love means. Okay, why? We know that this love is unique. First, because it's describing the recipients of the letter, right? The letter to the Ephesians is written to the Ephesian church, and we understand that this is written to the saints, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, obviously, it doesn't apply only to the ones in Ephesus and the ones in Galatia are out of luck, right? But the New Testament, the whole New Testament, and Ephesians in particular, are written to the elect, to the saints of God, So we know that this love is unique because it's talking about those people. The object of the love is defined. In love, he predestined us. The love is unique because Paul tells us who it is for. It is the ones that have been predestined. In love, he predestined us. We know that it is unique because its results and effects are defined for us. Predestined for adoption. In love, he predestined us for adoption. So by exclusion, it can't be referring to those who are not the addressees of the letter. It cannot be describing those who are not defined in its object. And it cannot be describing those who are not predestined for adoption. This love of Ephesians 1.4 is for the elect of God and no one else. Second point, we know that it is unconditional because of the last sermon. It is the cause of the choosing of verse 4. Remember when we said it could apply to both sentences because we're talking about the same thing? It does. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. It is unconditional because this choosing in love happened before the foundation of the world, before you had a chance to earn it, not that you could, We know that it's unconditional because God is free. God's decree to save, God's decree to elect is free and uncompelled. God did not check to see he was making the right choice. God did not look down the corridors of time to see how well you would do. And if it were conditional, we would fail to meet its conditions, wouldn't we? There's no good to be found in us. Remember Romans 3? None is good, no, not one. Point three, we know that this love is effectual for the salvation of the elect because, Job 42.2, God's purposes cannot be thwarted. You're not strong enough to fight with God. God has told us his purpose in doing this, and God's promises are true, right? His purpose in this love, in this choosing, is that we should be holy and blameless before him, and that purpose can't be thwarted. So if God loves us in this way, described in Ephesians 1-4, we will be holy and blameless. And we know that God is just. 
that those who have been given to the Son have been washed clean by the Son in the justice that occurred on the cross. God is just and he has judged the sins of his people on the cross of Christ. To execute his wrath on Christ for the sin of a person. And then to further execute his wrath once again against the person themselves is distinctively unjust. This cannot be. God is a God of justice and his wrath is satisfied in Christ. Those are the three things we need to understand about this love. It's unique, it is unconditional, and it is effectual. So that's the end of verse 4. Let's actually get to verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. I'm not going to spend too much time uh, laboring over he predestined because that was most of the stuff that we talked about last time, right? He chose us in him before the foundation of the world is the definition of he predestined. So we're going to focus now on adoption. And I titled this sermon, All God's Children, because that's what adoption is about, right? The objects of this adoption tell us who God's children are. But in order to see the contrast between those who are adopted and those who are not, those who are God's children and those who are not, and in order to refute the popular heresy that we are just all God's children, reaching out for a father, we're going to go to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, Jesus dunks on the Pharisees, as he was known to do. So what I'm going to do is read this passage, and then I'm going to make several observations from a couple of verses there that are sort of commentary on adoption in Ephesians 1.5. So I'm going to start in verse uh, 37. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Now, 
Let's make some observations. Verse 39, Jesus says, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. So to understand this, we need to understand the works of Abraham. What are these works of Abraham? Rather than give you a list, Paul summarizes it for us in Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. <clears throat> so here you have the Pharisees echoing everything I said about Nicodemus. Remember what I said? Nicodemus was you know, the place he was coming from when he talked to Jesus. Right? The Pharisees said, I'm saved because I'm a child of Abraham. God loves me because I'm a child of Abraham. And even better, I do the works of Abraham, so I'm worthy of that love. And when they understand the works of Abraham, they're talking about the works of the law. Paul, here in Romans 4, rejects this idea completely. Even though Abraham observed the law, except when he didn't, right? Abraham obeyed God, except when he didn't, right? James tells us that to transgress the law in one place, one letter, is to transgress the whole thing. So if you have failed to obey the law one time, you're guilty. The law convicts you, and the penalty is death. One time. Pharisees didn't understand that. Although, probably wouldn't have mattered because they probably thought they were perfect. To transgress the law is to transgress the whole thing. So what was the work of Abraham? It was a work of faith, perfected by God and counted to him as righteousness. In the minds of the Pharisees, Abraham was perfect like they were. That's what they mean when they say, we do the works of Abraham. We're perfect like him. Abraham was a wicked sinner, just like the Pharisees and just like us. But unlike Abraham, the Pharisees had no faith in the promise of the Messiah. They had faith in their works of the law. They had faith in their blood. Abraham had faith in the promise, and his faith was perfected by God. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. Now, there's a mistake that's really easy to make here. What I want you to understand is we shouldn't make the mistake of understanding verse 42 here in John 8 to mean that we have to prove that we love God. We have to prove that we love God. We have to prove that God is our Father by proving how much we love him. It's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is making an observation about the Pharisees. He's making an observation about his people. He's making a claim about the nature of God's adoption and what it does for his children. The Pharisees claim that God was their father. Jesus says, no, 
God was your father, you would love me. We, the elect of God, are adopted by God. And because of that, because God is our father, he is faithful to work in us that love for him. Jesus is saying the same thing as John says in 1 John 4, verse 17. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is also, are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Right? The Pharisees lived a life of fear. That's why they had all those made-up laws that they claimed to be extensions of what was written in the Torah. Because they were afraid that they were, would misunderstand something from the Torah, and then they would accidentally violate the law. They were afraid. But we do not live a life of fear. When we sin, we do not fear that we will suffer the wrath to come. Because we have an advocate with the Father. We don't have to prove that we are children of God. Rather, God proves that we are his children. And that we are the objects of his grace. Because he stirs up love in us. He stirs up that love that is part and parcel to the faith that we have been given through the work of the Spirit. We love God because he first loved us us. God is our Father, and He loves us, and so we love Him. The Pharisees, they didn't love God. They didn't love the Father, because He didn't love them. Instead, they did the works of their father, the devil. These Jews that he speaks to did the work of the devil because they were not adopted by God. They were adopted by Satan. Verse 43, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. They couldn't understand Jesus' words because God did not ordain for them to be able to hear and understand the gospel of Christ. Just as the elect of God were predestined for adoption as sons, so it is that the reprobate were predestined for destruction. That's not fair. Remember, forget everything you know about slipcovers. Let go of your human understanding of what justice and fairness are. It isn't fair that the wicked are predestined for destruction. Our human understanding of justice is that the wicked should be given a fair chance, a chance to prove themselves worthy. But why? That's not what salvation is based on, right? Salvation is based on the grace of God given to whomever he wills. It is based on God's righteous decree to save. And so in the same way, justice and judgment are based on God's righteous decree to judge. Allow scripture to shape your understanding of divine justice rather than applying your flawed human understanding of justice to God's divine economy. Turn to Romans 9. 
Remember when I said, but that's not fair. Paul addresses that exact objection. Verse 19, you will say to me, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? That's not fair. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if? God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience. Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. And because there were Jews in Rome listening to this, we get verse 24. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. It isn't fair. This is what God's justice is. Those God has adopted, he has poured out his grace and his mercy on them, even though they didn't deserve it. And to the wicked, he has ordained for them to receive the justice due to them. We also see that the word of God never returns void. We'll go back to John 8. I'm going to be there a little while longer. Verse 45. Because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. What I want you to see here is that the word of God never returns void. It has a purpose to everyone who hears it, for something. Isaiah 55, verse 10, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it will accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the things for which I sent it. There's this flawed understanding that, that I've seen people come to about the gospel. Or at least when they, they first come to recognize that the doctrines of grace might actually be the entire point of the New Testament. And they say, why do we preach the gospel to the reprobate? As though we could know who they were. Wouldn't it be cool if we had an elector detector? You had like a metal wand, you go up. Wicked center, reprobate. Anyone who can tell you, James said this last week, anyone who can tell you they know who the reprobate are is a wicked fool. We can hear and judge a profession of faith. right? You can tell me what you believe. You can tell me where your hope is. You can tell me who your savior is. We can judge that profession as being consistent or inconsistent with the truth of Christ. 
But to claim that we know that someone is reprobate is to claim to be God. Because of this, we preach the gospel to all people without distinction. Because you don't know who the elect are. Not only that, it has a purpose in the elect, and it has a purpose in the reprobate. For the reprobate, which you don't know who they are, the gospel of Christ has a purpose. That's what Jesus is telling us here in verse 45 of John 8. Right? The purpose for the elect is obvious, right? Romans 1, 16 and 17, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Right? It's the means, the mechanism, the instrument that God uses, the teaching of the gospel, to bring about the salvation of his people. Through the preaching of the gospel, his spirit works in us life. And so that's the purpose of the gospel for the elect. But it has a purpose in the reprobate, too. It's less obvious, but it's given to us in verse 45. Because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. They don't believe Jesus because he tells them the truth. God works the gospel in the hearts of the reprobate to further harden their hearts against him. It's the gospel of Christ that reveals in the heart of man their objection. Right? When you preach this free gospel that salvation is of the Lord, it doesn't depend on you. How many times do we hear, see people say things like, but what about? What about my works? What about my father Abraham? What about my church? What about my prayer? What about my baptism? Hearing the truth of the gospel, that it is free and given to the people of God with no conditions, for no reason except that God, according to the counsel of his will, has chosen to love his people. It reveals the hearts of men. It reveals where their hope lies. And so we preach the gospel to the elect, to the reprobate, to all people without distinction because God's word never returns void. So I titled this sermon, All God's Children. It should be clear by now that the children of God are only those who are adopted by God. Not every single person is God's child, right? We see this all the time in popular Christianity, in the voodoo mysticism that you see in California, <laughs> and everywhere. We're all God's children. You just have to accept him as father. God's children who are those who have been adopted by God. Those who, before the foundation of the world, were loved by him to be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined his people for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And here, our sanctification is in view again. Remember, we talked about sanctification a little bit last time. At the end of verse 4, to be holy. He predestined us to be holy in love. So in our adoption, our sanctification is in view because our adoption is not arbitrary. God just doesn't say, you're my child now. 
right? It's founded in justice, right? It is a legal declaration. That's one of the things we should understand about adoption from our experience of what we understand about adoption in this world. Adoption is a legal process, right? God's adoption of his people is founded in his justice, two different ways. First of all, God cannot suffer the wicked to live, right? We know that God, in his justice, must execute his wrath against the wicked. So God cannot adopt wicked people unless they have been justified. So on the cross of Christ, remember we talked about it in this covenant, and this is where the sanctification comes in. Remember, the people of God, the church, the bride of Christ are given to the Son. And the work that he does, the work that he talks about in John 17, is that he would wash them clean. He would cleanse their sins. So on the cross of Christ, Jesus receives the wrath for their sins, and in exchange, his righteousness is counted toward them. They are justified. And that is the legal basis for our adoption. And remember that sanctification, that setting apart, the purpose for which we have been set apart is that we would be the bride of Christ. So God doesn't say, you're my children now. He says, you're married to my son now. Our adoption is found in our marriage to Christ. Christ, our bridegroom. We are his bride. And God the Father is Christ's father. And so God the Father is our father. And so, to refute the error that all people are God's children and that God is waiting for us to reach out, those who are not married to Christ have no legal claim on being a child of God. God is just. We are given to Christ as a bride, and so we have confidence in God's justice for our salvation. We have legal claim to sonship. In Christ. In contrast, the Pharisees claim to be sons of God because they think they obeyed the law, because they were descended from Abraham. I'm a child of God because of who I am and what I have done. But we claim to be sons of God in a way that is independent of who our family is, it's independent of how good we are. We have been given ears to hear the promise of Christ, and we have been given faith to believe in the work of Christ, and we have been given to Christ as a bride. So we claim to be children of God on account of Christ, our head, our bridegroom, as God is his father, God is our father. And that brings us back to what I said was the center of this entire passage in Ephesians 1. Christ rests at the center. His work. His work in saving us, his work in cleansing us. It is all of Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, 
that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Let's pray. God, we thank you that it doesn't depend on us. We thank you that you have accounted for our failures. Because to require of us perfection is to require of us death. God, we thank you that you saw fit, that you were pleased to instead pour out your wrath on your own son. That in love we are made free. God, we thank you for your word that it is clearly explained to us here that we can taste and see and understand the work that you have done and that we may know our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.